Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, just a reminder, we're doing these talks live on Zoom every week. So if you'd like to be part of it as it goes on, and there are questions and answers at the end, you can ask a question if you like. Uh, we'd love to have you and become part of the community. Just subscribe at Torah on iTunes. Okay. I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, there's a, there's a giant question that, that, uh, sort of like I ask myself every, 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 every single year at this time, which is that we just started the Torah again. And in Parsha's Breshis, in, in, in Genesis, right? The beginning of that, God creates the world. And the next chapter, Parsha's Noah, God destroys the world. So how can it be? God just created the world. How can it be that he's already destroying it? That's a, it's a giant question that, that we have to try to wrap our, our minds around. And really, I want to take you through several different answers um, that, that we can, you know, we can suggest to, to try to understand this. Because one of the things that, that I, I find to be just this tremendous um, injustice, or if you want to be more dramatic about it, but just a, a tremendous slander um, against two, against God, against God, is, is this sort of like um, this view that of the, and, and I'm putting this in heavy, ironic quotation marks, okay? The, the angry God of the Old Testament, Right in 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 heavy sarcastic quotation marks that phrase um, that idea is actually you know depressingly widespread and and it comes from a real ignorance of who God is what God is uh, an ignorance of what the Torah is and what the Torah is actually teaching and so we have to really. And this is a great, this is a great opportunity, the story of Noah and, and, and the destruction of the world, because we can't, we can't pretend the world wasn't destroyed. The world was in fact destroyed, which is a very extreme, um, you know, act that, that, that God took. So, so why isn't this like a classic example of, again, in heavy quotation marks, the angry God of the Old Testament? By the way, just as an aside, um, the, the term even Old Testament is, is kind of like a, a very un-Jewish or perhaps anti-Jewish uh, uh, phrase. And, and uh, I think almost, almost no one really knows that. And, and certainly people don't use the phrase the Old Testament in a derogatory way. But, but I just want to sensitize us to the fact that um, the Old Testament, that, that phrase came about because a group of people decided that there was a New Testament, which made the Old Testament not relevant anymore. So, so the very phrase itself is, is really a, a, you know, a, a complete dismissal of the truth of Torah. Um, so, so I, I remember Reb Shlomo, my Rebbe, uh, made a big point one time. It never left my head, uh, which was, he said, don't, don't call, don't call it the Bible. Call it the Torah. Like it's, it's, it's important that we refer to our holy divine, you know, transmission as the Torah. That, 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 that's what we should call it. And, and the Bible, as Rip Shlomo might say, it's, it's cute and sweet, but it's not, you know, it, it's it's not really what it is. It's it's the Torah, and it certainly isn't the Old Testament. Okay, but let's go back to our question: Why isn't the flood like a great example of everything that that that, that the Torah is misunderstood to be? All right, so so we have to go deeper now. We're really going to have to try to kind of like explore this question. What was going on in the world? And, and remember, I think we have to start from the premise that, that God made the world and, and it's God's. It belongs to God. So I, I think everything really, this whole discussion will really only make sense if, if you understand that I'm, I'm starting with that premise. Okay. So I think that, uh, 
I think that I'd like to begin with a discussion of our star. Let's, let's, let's talk about Noah and, and who Noah was, and, um, and then we'll, we'll develop it from there, okay? So there's a very fascinating um, biographical piece of information about Noah that, that not that many people know, actually. Um, and, and, and Rashi brings it at the end of Parsha's Breshis. So it's, it's not in Parsha's Noah. So I think that's why people maybe aren't as familiar with it. It's when Noah is first introduced, which is the, the end of the, the, the last uh, portion of the week. Okay. And if you look there, um, what, what Rashi does is he, he, he tells you, you know, I, I was kind of joking with the, with the Hebrew the other day saying that, you know, that Noah was kind of like the Steve Jobs of his generation. You know, Lahav deal. It's, it's not, it's, it's not the, 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 the greatest comparison, but I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by it. Um, Noah invented the plow. So, so you should know that the, the plow, that, that's, that was a, a, a giant, um, turning point in terms of people's lives. Um, that, you know, so just for all of you non-farmers, including myself out there, what does a plow do? Like, in, in order to actually to, to have a crop, um, you have to dig these furrows over, like, into the ground, and sometimes the ground is very hard. So to actually actually dig furrows, dig, dig these like mini ditches into the ground, which, which will span like acres, you know, that, that's really, really hard work. So, so the plow went and, and solved that problem for people. So what you would have is you would have, um, say, an ox, like a strong animal, and the ox would have some sort of binding, usually in its mouth, and the ox would walk forward and it would pull, it would have ropes behind it and it would pull this plow that would sort of like, these wheels were sort of like, almost like circular saws in a way. And they would penetrate the ground. And as the ox would walk, you would have all these furrows. And now it was very easy to just plant seeds in the furrows and then to cover it up with dirt. Okay. So... So believe it or not, another sort of side side piece of information here, um, but 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 compelling, is that the the midrash says that the ground was so fertile um, back in the day that one crop would produce forty years worth of produce. One crop would produce forty years worth of produce. Now that was sort of a blessing and a curse. The blessing was that, you know, you didn't have to work so hard that for, for so long, okay? Um, what, was, what was the downside of it, though? We had a lot of time on our hands. And, you know, especially, I think, for better or for worse, I think a lot of us are dealing with that in our lives right now, you know, with the sequestering and the, and the corona and all the rest. And, and sometimes having a lot of time on your hands is not a great thing for, for so many reasons, but, but, um, but you can really kind of be led astray. That the just, if you're not busy, sometimes, um, you know, you, you've got time for things maybe that you shouldn't have time for. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, so we have a word in Hebrew. The word is menucha. Menucha means rest, like it's a very special word for rest. It's like a, a holy rest, you know, um, and, and it's associated with Shabbos, actually. So Menucha, the root of that is actually Noach, Noach, because Noach brought this type of rest. And, and, and Noach is even related to the concept of Shabbos. So, so Noach himself was this very very high, wonderful figure. So, so hopefully we just learned something new about Noah here. Okay, that's that's um, that, that that's one thing. But I want to go a little bit deeper now, and I want to tell you a thought that I heard from uh, Rabbi Kersner, Olive Shalom, just an amazing um, reconceptualization 
of, of this concept of pulling a plow, okay? Because when we say the Shema, and of course everybody knows that's the kind of like Judaism boiled down into uh, one, in, into six words, right? That God is one, the, that the whole world belongs to God, that the whole world exists inside of God, right? All, all of these things are contained within the Shema. So, so there are all sorts of holy things you're supposed to have in mind when you say the Shema. And, and one of those things is, you know, you, you cover your, your eyes. I heard something beautiful from Rabbi Blech. He says, why, why do you close your eyes, put your hand over your eyes when you're saying Shema? Because Shema is all about the oneness of God. And you want to close your eyes to this superficial layer of reality and tap into the inside, which is telling you that all that exists is God. In other words, when you close your eyes and you say, Shema Yisrael, you're tuning into the fact that all that exists is God. Because it's very easy to get blinded by our eyes. You know, we think that somehow our eyes are the antidote to blindness, but our eyes can be the gateway to blindness because all we see is what's in front of our eyes. And then therefore we think that's all that exists is what I can see with my eyes. So, so sometimes shutting your eyes allows you to, to get to the inside, which is the fact that all that exists is God. Okay. Now, since I told you that, I have to give you the other side of it. You know, um, it, I, I, I love uh, this idea. Uh, the way I called it one time was doing a 360 around of teaching. A th- 360, of course, is, is the, the, the measurements of a circle, 360 degrees. So you have to, whenever you learn something, you can't just learn that one thing. Uh, someone once told me you can't hear just one talk from a rabbi because then you, you, don't, under, you, you don't have the context to know when that very thought doesn't apply. In other words, there, there, there are times where the exact opposite of the teaching applies, but that's not a contradiction, contradiction to the teaching itself. It's just showing you how to apply it in a different circumstance. Okay, so, so the example that I always, and we'll get back to the Shema in a second, just, just so I'm communicating with you. The example that I always like to give for that is if your grandmother makes you chicken soup, right? And let's say you, you taste the chicken soup and it's awful, right? Just, I don't know. She's having trouble seeing. She mixed up the ingredients. Whatever it is, the, the soup doesn't taste any good. And she asks you, how is the soup? There is only one answer to that question. The answer is the soup is delicious. <laughs> so, so you say, well, I'm very religious now. I'm, I can't lie. But you don't understand. You're not hearing the question. You, do you think she's asking you about the soup? Do you know when she's asking you, do you like the soup? Do you understand what question is actually being asked? She's, she's asking you, do you know how much I love you? That's, we're not talking about the soup. Yeah, you've got a bowl of soup in front of you. She's asking you about the soup. We are not talking about the soup. She's asking you, do you know how much I love you? And the answer is yes. And how do you say Yes. You say, the soup is delicious. You see, this is, we have to train ourselves to actually hear the words inside of words. We have to train ourselves to understand when someone asks a question, what's the actual question that they're asking? So I told you, we close our eyes when we say Shema in order to block out the superficial layer of reality, in order to lock into the fact that all that exists is God. So now, what's the opposite of that teaching? The opposite of that teaching is that according to Jewish law, every shul, every synagogue, place of worship, has to have windows so that you can see outside. See, you, you, you could misunderstand this idea that I'm, I'm closing my eyes to this superficial level of reality, meaning to say, um, you know... If, if, if that person is suffering over there, that's his business, right? Like, I'm closing my eyes. To, that's what a religious person does. He closes his eyes to reality. That's, it's not it. It's not it. It's supposed to make you more tuned into reality. And so where do you see that? The fact that a house of worship has to have windows. In other words, 
you can't make a separation between your prayers and what's going on outside of the synagogue. You have to be totally aware of all the injustice that's happening in the world so that you can use this as a springboard in order to go out there and correct it. So, so there's an example where you have seemingly two opposite ideas, but it's all different applications of the same idea. Okay. So, so when we say... When we say Shema, we're supposed to have in mind, what are, there's all sorts of holy uh, kavanas, intentions, that we're supposed to have in mind when we, when, we, when we say Shema. But let me tell you what I think maybe the most fundamental one is, okay? And that is, you're, it, you say, I'm taking on the, I'm going to say a Hebrew phrase, I'll translate it, I'm taking on the Ol Malchus Shemaim. O Malchus Shemaim. What does that mean? That means the yoke of heaven. And if you know a little bit of Hebrew, I'll tell you something cool, which is um, that if you take the first letters of that phrase, O Ayin, Malchus Mem Shemaim Shin, and you make it backwards, it spells Shema. Or Shema backwards is O Malchus Shemaim, taking on the yoke of heaven. Okay. Now, what did we just say? Because we said that Noah was the one who created the plow. And how does a plow work? A plow works with a yoke. Okay, that's why we're talking about all this stuff. So, so, but wait, what you described a second ago was something really unpleasant. <laughs> you, you, you talked about an ox with some sort of binding in his mouth. And then there are these cords and he's pulling this heavy plow. That's what a yoke is. That's, that's how a plow works. And you're saying every time I'm taking on the, the, the idea of Ol Malchus Shemayim, that God is one, that all that exists is God, the whole world belongs to God, that God, all, that, that the whole world exists within God, all these exalted thoughts. But I'm just an ox. You know, let's, let's kind of get, let's cut to the bottom line here right now. So what's going on? So, so now let me tell you what, what pshat is, okay? What, what did that actually means? Because it's, it, it's not this ox imagery at all. It's not at all, okay? Something very beautiful, extremely beautiful, very, very high, okay? Now, again, I heard this from Rabbi Kersner, just like, it's a life-changing thought. If you really think about this and kind of, as Rip Shlomo would say, carve it into your heart, this will change your life, Okay? See, you know what it is? What are we pulling? Each of us, each of us is connected to Shemayim, the old Malchu Shemayim, right? The yoke of heaven. Each of us is tied to heaven. Do you know, do you know the word mitzvah? Um, the, the root of that word actually means a connection. So through the mitzvot, we actually have these divine cords, and they're attached to heaven. And wherever we walk in our life, we're pulling heaven down to earth. That, that's, that's actually the imagery. Each of us is connected to heaven, and it says, remember, it says in the Medrash, that, 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 that the least of us, the, 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 those of us on the lowest, lowest spiritual, spiritual level are filled with mitzvot like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. So this is true for all of us. And, and wherever we walk, we're pulling heaven down to earth. That's the old Malchus Shemayim. Okay, so... So let's take it to the next step. I want to tell you something. I think it was from the Ger Rebbe. Something, something really beautiful, just in terms of the structure of the prayers. You know, the Chachamim, our sages, that the, the prayers were really first put into effect by the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, which was sort of like this, the grand assembly of the sages of Israel. And, and it included prophets. So the way the prayers are actually structured and arranged is 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 from prophecy. It's it's not just someone compiled something or someone had a 
you know, great day and just wrote something inspired. So, so, so the prayer book is actually a work of prophecy that sometimes that gets lost. People don't always fully appreciate how, how intricately and delicately constructed each of the words are and the number of letters in the words and the number of words in a sentence or a thought. Okay, so with that in mind, the prayer, what do we say? What is the prayer before Shema? I want to show you how it's all a love sandwich, okay? So here it is, like like the Shema, right? So so we say a blessing before we say the Shema. Baruch atah Hashem, habocher ba'mo Yisrael bi'ava. He chooses his people, Israel, bi'ava, with love. Um, bi'ava, interesting. Ava is the number 13, okay? And Bez is the number 2. Isn't it interesting that 2 times 13 is 26, which is Hashem's holiest name, the yud Vavke. So, So in introducing the Shema, we say, the last word before we say Shema is Ava, is love. And then we say the Shema. And, and the culmination of the Shema is the word Echad, that God is one. Now, one, the word one, is also the Gematria 13, which is Ava, which is love. Because how do you make, how do you make oneness? If we want to reveal the oneness of the entire world, how do we do it? Through loving each other. Okay. And then, what comes next? Baruch Shem Kavod And the holy intention you're supposed to have on at, at that time, when you say those words, is that, is that you're taking on the old mitzvahs. Remember, the, 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 the yoke of mitzvahs or these, these, these divine cords, right? Connecting you to heaven with love. You see, because the idea is the following. We want to do more than just bring heaven down to earth. We want to make heaven and earth one entity. And how do you make heaven and earth into one entity? Through love. So we're taking on the mitzvahs with love. Remember, Ava and Echad, love and oneness, it's the same DNA, right? So, so that's, that's the next step, okay? And then, what's the word right after we say we're taking the, the mitzvahs on with love? The ahavta, also love. <laughs> and you shall love. So do you see, it's, it's love, 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 love. It's all love. The whole thing is love. So, so that's... You know, this, this angry God of the whole, of the Old Testament. It, it's all love. Okay, so we've got to get back to our giant question here, right? And then God destroys the whole world. Okay, well, that's pretty heavy. That seems to be worth discussing further in light of what we've just said, right? Um, and, yeah, okay. So so we've got some answers here. And I want to begin with 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 a thought that's it's going to what I'm about to tell you is going to sound very mysterious, okay? Um but first let me just add one more thing to this idea of making something one, okay? It's one of my favorite thoughts actually from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he says that, you know, when you write on a page you have the ink and you have the page. And even though one, one is on top of the other, so, so there are really two things. It's the ink and it's, it's, it's the page, okay? But when you actually carve something into stone, like the, like the, the, the letters, the, 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 the Ten Commandments, right, were carved into stone by the finger of God. Not that God has a body, but just so we can wrap our mind around it. In fact, I saw a commentary, I forgot who, who said it, but it's hundreds of years old, that basically that God, like, like with a, 
a beam of light, like it was like a, a laser. So, so, so since back in the day, they didn't have the term lasers. They used the term the finger of God, but the finger of God was basically a, a divine laser beam. Isn't that cool? So, so it's carving the letters into the stone. When you carve the letters into the stone, the, the words, the ideas, the thoughts, and the thing itself are one entity. You see, it's, that, that's, that, that's what we do with love. It's not something that's just superficially imposed on something else. We could call that like, perhaps. But once it becomes love, then that oneness, that fusion takes place like letters carved into stone. It's one entity. Okay. So now, now I want to talk about something, and, and I'm going to say something uh, that will sound very cryptic, extremely cryptic, but I'm, I'm going to explain it, and, and hopefully it will become more resonant the more we go back to this idea, okay? But if you're going to scratch your head in the beginning, that's, that's to be expected, okay? And, and here's, the, here's the statement. And again, we're trying to explain why God destroyed the world, okay? And what I want to say is the following, is that a shoe is not a hammer. A shoe is not a hammer. Okay, so cryptic. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that let's say you you have a nail and you want to get it into a piece of wood, right? And you look for a hammer and you don't have a hammer. But you've got a shoe. So you take the back of the shoe, the heel of the shoe, and you bang, 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 bang the nail into the wood, and you've successfully done what you were trying to accomplish. Okay? With your shoe. And yet, a shoe is not a hammer. You can use a shoe for a hammer sometimes, But a shoe is not a hammer. It's meant for something else. Okay, so why am I telling you this? Because the world was created for a particular reason. And it's very possible, it happens all the time, to use the world for a completely different set of purposes. And you can use them for all of those purposes And you can even accomplish your purpose that you set out to do. But that's not what the world is there for. That's not why the world was created. Again, you can use a shoe as a hammer, but that's not why the shoe was created. The shoe is for something else. The world was created for a very particular thing. The world is this amazing, amazing wonderland of interfacing between us and God. And God gives us just zillions and zillions of opportunities in different, different ways and opportunities to connect with him and to elevate and to, and to, and to, to make divine, like the most mundane acts, you know, um, one of the things that I loved growing up, uh, while, while I was still kind of on my road to, you know, keeping Shabbos and things like that, but I remember when I was around 14 or something like that, someone told me how to put on my shoes and socks in a Torah way. And I loved it so much, you know, and just on the off chance you don't know how to do it, let me just tell you, you put your right sock on first, and then your left sock, and then your right shoe, and then your left shoe, and now it switches you tie your left shoe and then your right shoe, okay? So right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe. You tie your left shoe and then you tie your right shoe. And there are different explanations for this. And this one I heard, and I don't know, it may do nothing for you, but I remember when I was growing up and I heard this, I I loved it so much, which is, well, why do you do it that way? Why can't you just put your right sock on and then your right shoe? And the person told me, because then it will make your left foot feel bad. (laughs) 
And I thought, wow, there's a religion that cares about how my left foot feels? <laughs> that somehow it'll, it'll, its feelings, so to speak, will be hurt? And by the way, you see that throughout Torah. That, that's, that, that's a real Torah thought, that, that, that you have to be sensitive to even inanimate objects. It's a, it's, and I heard this from Rabbi Fran. I'll just give you an example in case you're wondering if this is legit or not. It's totally legit. By Hanukkah, um, you know, we, we light the menorah, of course, and uh, many people light with candles, and that's fine. That's 100% okay. Um, but the truth is, because the miracle of the of, of Hanukkah was done with oil, it, it's considered, you know, more spiritual, you know, a higher spiritual observance of, of the festival to, to light the menorah with oil. Okay? So, so here's the question. Uh, let's say I'm about to light the menorah, and I pick up a candle to, to light it, and then I remember, oh! I have oil in the house. That's an even bigger mitzvah, right? I can do it, or a bigger hitter, right? A bigger beautification of the mitzvah. I can do it with oil. What should I do? And, and the answer is, since you picked up this candle, it would be insulting to the candle, since you already elevated it for a mitzvah, to put it down. So you light with the candle, even though you have oil in the house. So there you have an example, an amazing example, how Torah is even sensitive to the inanimate realm. Amazing, amazing idea. Okay, so, so let's, get back to, uh, let's get back to our discussion. Um, have to remember where we... <laughs> The many, the, the many highways and byways. Where, where were we? Uh, we were talking about um, a shoe is not a hammer. That's 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 what it is, and the fact that the world was created for a particular thing, but that it can be misused, and and that's what happened in the generation of the flood. The world was being fundamentally misused. And I'll give you an example that, that, that's, that, that, the, that the, the rabbis give in the Medrash. You know, one of my favorite English words, just because it's so fancy, is justiciable. Okay? Justiciable means eligible to be adjudicated. There's another fancy word. Like, 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 you, it's uh, grounds for bringing something before a court of law, okay? Now, the minimum, you know, you, you have like certain um, monetary limits for what is subject to, say, small claims court in the United States or what, what would go to a higher court, depending on different amounts of money. So we have that in American civil law today. Well, they have that in ancient law as well. And, and a pruta was like a penny back in the day. And anything that was a like damages or theft that was under the value of a pruta was not justiciable. In other words, you couldn't bring it before a court of law if someone stole less than a penny from you. Okay? And they say, the rabbis teach that one of the reasons why God brought the flood to the to the world is because we were stealing from each other less than a pruta's worth. Isn't that interesting? So, so you could misunderstand that. You could say, well, you mean for such a small crime, God destroys the world? But that, that's not the idea. The idea is that we had become so corrupt, so corrupt, that we had even found ways where our corruption could not be addressed by society anymore. You know, one of the, you know, there's seven universal laws, and they're named after Noah. They're called the Noahide laws in English, um, or in Hebrew, the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, okay? And, and that's kind of an important concept, too, because it shows you, these, these universal laws show you that Jews and non-Jews, every, because we're all God's children, 
all of us have a share in the Torah. So, you know, just in terms of the universal outlook of, of Torah and Judaism, very important to understand that everyone has a share in the Torah. And since we say mystically that God, that the Torah existed before the world, and that God shaped his thoughts and his dreams, which was the Torah before the world existed, that he shaped his thoughts and his dreams for the world, into the world itself, how could it be that everyone doesn't have a share in the Torah? It must be everyone has a share in the Torah, and in fact, everyone does. Now, one of these seven universal laws is that there should be a system of courts and justice. There has to be, if we have free choice, there has to be a way to address the misapplication of free choice among people, and that's the court system. So you need it. That's a, that's a staple of this world. This world cannot exist without it. So what did the people in the time of the generation of the flood, what did they figure out how to do? How to shield themselves from the entirety of the judicial system altogether. How to render justice unapplicable. How to do away with justice. That, that's what it means that they stole less than a penny and therefore even though they were thieves, their crime against society could not be addressed. They found a way to completely eradicate justice. That, that, that's, that's what the rabbis are trying to teach here. It's not that it was a small crime and the god of vengeance is, is coming down over this small crime. That, that, that's not the idea at all. It's that we had found a way to obliterate justice. Okay. So, so, so along comes Noach, and, and, and God says, you know something? We're going to start all over again. And a lot of people have problems with Noach because they're like, Noach, you were so holy. Why is it that you didn't try to convince God to save the world? And I think that that, that question, it's, it's asked by everyone, and there's nothing wrong with the question, but, but we have to get a better understanding of what the situation was, okay? First of all, let's understand that it says in Pirkei Avos that all of us, every single one of us, should strive to make God's will our will. In other words, God, what do you want? You want that? That's what I want too. You want that? That's what I want. So, so that, is, that is the definition of, of righteousness, right? To make your will God's will, okay? So, so, so what does God say? Noach, we're going to make a flood and we're going to obliterate the world. And Noach was like, absolutely, let's do it. So you see, like in the in the essence of it, what is what is one's complaint against Noah exactly? He just wanted what God wanted. Okay, but what's fascinating is that the concept of the tzaddik. Remember, Noah is called a tzaddik by God, and in the five books, the only person to be called a tzaddik by God in the entire Torah is Noah. We say Yosef at Sadiq, but that, 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 that phrase does not exist in the five books. Okay? It's, it's no less true, by the way. It's just, it's just Noah is the only one written by God is at Sadiq. So, so, so what's fascinating is as you read Torah and as you look into the world, you see the evolution of the Sadiq. And, and I want to go into that right now, because this is quite an amazing thing. And I'm going to bring, a, I'm not sure if it's from the Ari or the Zohar. I've heard it attributed to, to two different places. But I want to show you something, what I think is, is, is absolutely phenomenal. And, and let's begin, if we're going to talk about the evolution of a tzaddik, with a very giant Kabbalistic thought. Now, I think everybody knows that Judaism believes in reincarnation. And um, 
in in fairness, um, it, it's not uh, it's not a one hundred percent consensus. Uh, the the Sadiagon, who was the leader of the Jewish people in around the time eight hundred approximately, uh, uh, he did not believe in reincarnation. So you have certain great figures um, like him, but the great majority of our sages. Um, even into the present period, including the Vilna Gon, the Baal Shem Tov, the Ari, of course, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, like on and on and on and on, all line up and absolutely support this idea that Judaism 100% believes in reincarnation. Okay, so with that in mind, listen to this. Noach is reincarnated as Moshe Rabbeinu, as Moses. And if you think about it, like at first I had a, I just like couldn't like Moses is Moses and ah, it's, you're hurting my brain. Don't, don't. And Noah was the one who didn't stop the flood. Noah can't even compare to the righteousness of Moshe. And you're telling me that they're one soul and ah, my brain can't hold it. So over the years, as you, you, you think about these things, because you have to think about these things for, for years, these ideas. Um, and then try to integrate them into your life, you know, to carve them, make, 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 make your, yourself a, an embodiment of these ideas, your life a, a testimony to these ideas. So, 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 so that being the case, like, over the years I thought about it, and now it's a very natural thought. Of, of course, Noah gets reincarnated as Moshe. Okay. So for all of you who are still new to this thought, let me just give you a couple of... Uh, Couple of just basic ideas where you can begin to see that that in the, the truth of it. Okay, so first of all, by Noah's time, it rained for for forty days, right? Forty days and forty nights. Moshe was on top of Mount Sinai for forty days, right? Well, that's a nice connection. Uh, Noah went into an ark. Moshe, when he was a baby. They put him in an ark to protect against what? The, the waters of the Nile. Um, Noah builds the ark for 120 years. You know, an ark, if you want to be poetic about it, is like the rabbis sometimes compare a ship to the body, right? And that you sail across a, a stretch of ocean and that's your lifetime. Um so Noach built the ark for 120 years. Moshe lived to 120, 120 years. And actually the Gomorrah itself says that in, in the word is escaping me at this moment, but, but that in the building of Noah's ark, there's a key word in there, which is the gematria of 345, which is the gematria of, of Moshe. So so that's the Gomorrah saying, where do you see Moshe? And you see him right in the building of the ark itself, of Noah. Okay. Now let's get a little bit deeper, okay? You know, I learned this from Rabbi Wolfson, Shlita, something amazing. The Talmud says that wherever you see reference to water, it's really talking about Torah. And that really the Torah was supposed to be given in the time of Noah. Isn't that fascinating? But because the generation wasn't worthy, the Torah came down in its physical form, which we just said is water. So it came down like water for 40 days and 40 nights. Isn't that interesting? It came down in its material form instead of its spiritual form. So, so that's another comparison. But now I want to give you the best comparison of all, okay? All that really is just to introduce this idea. And again, we're talking about the evolution of the tzaddik. So, so I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar, something that once I heard this, I, I felt like, ah, okay, here is the key to understanding Noah. You ready? And it's the following, that prayer hadn't been created yet. Isn't that a fascinating idea? In other words, the idea that you would, that God would show you something and that you would say back to God, no, not this. And that God wanted you to do that, that God was only showing you injustice. 
in order for you to say, no, God, not this. And that's what he actually wants from us. That that type of relationship hadn't actually entered into the world yet. And where do you see actually the first example in it? If we really want to sort of like chart the evolution of, of, of tzitkis, of righteousness in this world, we really see it with Avraham Avinu beseeching God to spare the people of Sodom. Now, Sodom to this day, Sodom and Gomorrah, is, is, can, is, to this day is still like the most alarming way we can sort of like summarize like um, corruption, right? Moral, moral corruption. And yet here, Abraham Avinu is begging God, please spare the people of Sodom. So, so, so that, that's, that's amazing. But, 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 but that's, an, that's an evolution that needed to take place. But now, you know, the whole concept of reincarnation is why is God bringing us back again? It's to fix either mistakes from the past or there are things that our soul, work that our soul hasn't yet completed yet, okay? And so, so we have another opportunity to finish the mission, the truth of our soul, okay? That's, that's very important. So now, let me show you, why would, why would God bring Noah back as, as Moshe? Okay, so, so probably for a lot of reasons, but... But we're going to zero in in one, on one reason, and you'll see something amazing in the Torah itself, okay? So let's get to that. Now, remember, the, the idea that the flood was Noah's fault, actually, we've got a great source from that, right, right from the prophet Yeshaya. The, 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 the prophet Yeshaya, Isaiah, calls the waters of the flood May Noah, the waters of Noah. In other words, See all these waters? See this big flood, Noah? This is, this is named after you. This is your fault, seemingly. Okay? So, so, so what, do we want, what do we want Noah to have been able to do? To, to, to say to God, no, don't do this. Don't do this. And, and, and what we're saying, what we're saying is, is, that, is that Noah gets another opportunity as, as, as Moshe, to, to, to fix his soul. Okay, so, so now listen to this. Um, you know, I think we've got, uh, yeah, yeah, if everyone could just mute themselves. Um, so if, you, if, you, if you'd like to see this inside the Torah, and I'll give you the, the source, it's, it's easy to remember. It's uh, chapter 32, verse 32 in, 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 in Shmos, in Exodus, okay? 32 is gematria, the heart. So the heart of the heart. Very, very easy to remember. Chapter 32, verse 32. So, so what, did, what did we say? We said that, um, that, 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 the, that the words blaming Noah are may Noah, the waters of Noah. Now listen to this. I'm going to read it in English first. After the sin of the golden calf, God says, I'm going to destroy the whole world. I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. And Moshe, I'm going to start all over with you. Does that sound like, sound like Noah, right? I'm going to destroy the Jewish people and I'm going to start over with you. And this time, Moshe answers the following. And now, if you would but forgive their sin, but if not, erase me now from the book that you've written. Now, you ready for this? That's, that's like the, the, the fixing. That's like what we wanted Noah to say to Hashem. But this time, Moshe is saying it to God, right? Now, the word erase me from your book. In Hebrew, it's machini. And machini are the exact letters. The four letters that spell machini are the four letters that spell May Noah. In other words, the waters of the flood of Noah, this damning, this, this condemnation of Noah, those four letters get rearranged into Machani. Erase me from your book, God, if you're not going to forgive them. It's unbelievable. But I want to tell you something even more unbelievable, which is that God had to tell Moshe to say it. 
That's the Gomorrah. Hashem says, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. And then Hashem says after that, now stop trying to stop me. And why Moshe wasn't trying to stop him? And then Moshe said, oh, I'm supposed to try to stop you. That's the Gomorrah, by the way. That's The Gomorrah explains that. It shows you how challenging this this concept is. When do we tell God, don't do it? God will show us things, injustices in the world for us to say, don't do it, God. And he wants us to say it. And here's proof that he wants us to say it. Because after he says this thing that he doesn't want, I'm going to destroy the whole Jewish people and start over with you, Moshe. He then says, God then says, Stop trying to stop me, meaning, stop me, Moshe. So you see two amazing things here. One is the evolution of the soul of the tzaddik, that Moshe says, erase me from your book, which is the exact letters of Noach, the waters of Noach. It gets rearranged and formulated in this phenomenal fixing. But at the same time, Moshe had to be told. So, yeah. But let me tell you what the good news is. So you say, what, cho- what, what chance is there for me? If Moshe Rabbeinu didn't even know, what chance is there for me? If Noah didn't know, what chance is there for me? But there's another lesson that we learn from this. Now listen to this. As Rib Shlomo would say, open up your hearts. Hashem told him when to, when to protest. That's amazing. In other words, in other words, if you're wholly given over to God and you really want to do his will, God himself will tell you. Right? That's what happens with Moshe. And in today's day and age, you know, we have the leaders of the generation. If we don't have that level of connection, they do. Because that never leaves the world. That divine flow at the highest level never leaves the world. Okay. So, so I want to I wanna go deeper. I want to go deeper. You see... At the time of the flood, the entire world was on one side and Noah was on the other side. And by the way, a little bit further, the, 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 the flood is such a giant topic that sometimes um, the Tower of Babel plays second fiddle. The Tower of Babel is also in Parsha's Noah. You know, so, so that comes a little bit later. And the rabbis teach that the entire world was on the side of the Tower of Babel and there was only one person who was against this enterprise, and that was Avraham Avinu. Isn't that amazing? So you have two very, very exact dynamics. The whole world is on one side, and there was one individual on the other side. Now, if ever you needed a testimony to quality over quantity, you'll never find a better example of this. Quality over quantity. It's all about attaching yourself to the truth. And today, we've got such an obsession with, you know, you know if you want to, you know, um, assess a person's importance in this world, how many followers do they have, right, on, you know, social media? How many, how many views, how many likes, right? That's, that's the measure of a person today. But you know what's, like, amazing? You only need one like. I think that's very, very encouraging. You only need one like, because it's God's world. And, you know, we, we have to make sure that we don't misuse that idea, because there are a lot of people who are like, you know, all that matters is the way God thinks about me, and I don't care the way you think about me, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and... You know, they want to do God's will, and, and what's the end product? They make themselves utterly obnoxious. And 
It says in Pirkei Avos, who does God like? Someone who's liked by other people. So if you actually want to be an emissary of God in this world, if you actually want to sort of like reflect the higher light, you have to make sure that you're doing beautiful things in beautiful ways. Okay? I'm going to say that one more time because it's really important. You have to do beautiful things. The mitzvahs are beautiful, but you have to do beautiful things in beautiful ways. Okay. So, so I just want to throw out one more thought, and then I, I, I want to get into the destruction of the world itself, okay? And this is worth spending much more time on, but I just want to just put this idea in your head, okay? Which is, from whose point of view are you seeing the world from? In other words, I would say 99.9% of us are living our lives just seeing the world through our own personal point of view. But what I would suggest is, if it's God's world, it might be worth seeing the world from God's point of view. Right? But then we have to understand a lot of things. about. Well, then how does God see the world? Well, first and foremost, he loves his creation. He loves us to pieces. That that's, that is the premise of everything. And if you don't understand that that's the premise of everything, that, that God is good and that he loves his creation, then you will misunderstand every aspect of this world and you will misunderstand every aspect of your life. But, but, but it is useful to just as an exercise. Oh, could everyone just mute themselves, please? It is, it is useful just as an exercise to try to look at the world from God's point of view. And, you know, in Hebrew, we have kind of a, a, a fancy way of saying that. That's what it means to be, according to the Taz, L'shem Shemaim, for the sake of heaven. For the sake of heaven means that this world is for heaven's sake, for God's sake, from God's point of view, right? So, so that's a very, very beautiful way to try to look at and try to look at each other from God's point of view. You know, the Carlina Rebbe says, I wish, I wish I could love the biggest tzaddik, the biggest holy person, as much as God loves the lowest rasha, the biggest wicked person. I wish I could love the most righteous person as much as God loves the lowest person. Amazing. Okay. So now, what about this destroying the world business? What's that all about? And again, God creates the world in Parsha's Breshis, and then he's already destroying it, the very next chapter. What is going on? All right. So now let's go deeper, okay? Listen to the following. I'll tell you a story. This is uh, something that happened with me and my wife. We had been married a couple of years, and she said, okay, let's get a house. And I grew up in New York City. I grew up in an apartment, and I didn't know from houses. I was like, eh, I don't know. It's, I think apartments are pretty good. Let's, let's stay in an apartment. And she's like, no, 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 that's, no, no. And anyway... Uh, uh, I did not win that that conversation as it went on for a while. But we we finally bought this like very rundown fixer upper, and you know it was just kind of too kind of broken down to move into. But um, anyway, the idea was that, that we would fix it up. Okay, so we we you know interviewed a few contractors, and they just like, wow, you know, they had such a beautiful vision for like what this house could look like and everything like that. And then they'd give us their, um, their price quote. And we were like, we can't afford that. We, so, so we, we couldn't move into the house and we, we didn't have the money to fix it up to. So, so basically the house just stood there for, I think over a year. All right. And, and one of the sort of like the comedic kind of like low points of it is that, we, we decided, well, at least let's try to put a coat of paint on the outside of it. So we put up several swatches of different colors on the wall outside the house. And 
and months went by before we moved in, you know, and, and, and periodically we'd visit the house and we'd see neighbors from the street standing in front of the swatches of paint, just pointing like, you know, I think that's the, they should go with that color. You know, it's like we made like a, a party game out of our, our house for people, you know, uh, we even, we even got a ticket that from, from the city that we hadn't mowed our lawn, but our grass was too long. So it, it was a, the whole thing was a disaster. Okay. Anyway, we met this, this sort of like, uh, this worker, uh, I, I think he was from Mexico, uh, an amazing guy. And, and, and I don't think he had any licenses whatsoever from the city, but he had a large sledgehammer and he knew how to swing it. And so he went over our trust and we were like, okay, we, we have literally run out of options. Just go into the house with your sledgehammer and just, just do what you need to do. And he we, he did, and he just started swinging and knocking down walls and things like that. And I went to visit the site, and there was like this big cloud of plaster dust over it. And, and I remember standing there thinking, it's so beautiful. And anyone would have thought I was crazy, like before you had a house at least. Now it's like it's, like it's being turned into rubble. So, so what was so beautiful to me about it? And the answer is, is because I saw progress being made. Finally, we had made literally a breakthrough. And I knew that this destruction that was taking place was for the sake of something more beautiful being rebuilt in its place. And with that in mind, I think we can understand the flood from God's point of view. You see... There are different, there are 39 categories of work that we don't do on Shabbos. And we learn those out from the construction of the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, which of course was the prototype of the holy temple in Jerusalem, the Beis Hamigdash, which was a portal between heaven and earth, connecting heaven and earth. And so these 39 levels of, of work went into its construction. By the way, I heard something wonderful from Rabbi Manus Freeman which is that, you know, 39 is a bit of an odd number. We, 40 is a great number. We talked about 40 earlier. Why, why, why shouldn't there be 40 levels of work, categories of work? And he says, actually, there are 40 categories of work. But the 40th level is making something out of nothing. And only God can do that. So, you know what? On Shabbos, you don't have to worry about that category. So we'll just call it 39, okay? So you're, you're not going to be making something out of nothing. So, so relax about that one. Anyway, one of the categories of the 39 categories of, of building is actually, believe it or not, destroying. But not destroying in the sense of vandalism or anti-social wanton destruction. If Imagine you want to build like a gleaming high-rise and there's like an old shack in that place and you tear down that shack. Well, you're tearing down that shack so that something more magnificent actually can go up in its place. So that act of destruction actually is an act of building. And that's what God was doing with the flood. That's what God was doing with the flood. Let's go back to those cryptic words that I said earlier, and I think you understand them better now. A shoe is not a hammer. A shoe is not a hammer. It can be used as a hammer, but that's not what it was created for. The world was created to be this awesome interface between us and Hashem. It can be used for the lowest, most corrupt purposes. And you'll even be able to accomplish them because God gives us free choice. God gives us the power to realize our will in this world so that we can successfully implement our intentions on this world. But that doesn't mean that's what the world was made for. The world was made for something entirely different. The world was made to be this awesome fusion of heaven and earth. And we are the emissaries by taking on the old Mahushamayim. Remember, the mitzvahs are these divine cords connecting us to heaven. Wherever we walk, we're pulling heaven down to earth. The purpose of this world 
is to bring heaven down into this earth, but not just to bring it down into this world, but through love to make it all one. That's what this world was made for. And when we, when everyone was on one side of the scale, except for Noah, he was the only one on the other side, decided to take a vote with their actions that we're going to use the world for our purposes, from our point of view, God said, no, it's time to begin again. But not for the sake of destroying, for the sake of realizing something more beautiful, for rebuilding. And I'll just end with one more point, just to make it very personal for our own lives, okay? This category of work in Hebrew is called Cesar. Um, fascinatingly, I noticed that Cesar is also the word in Hebrew for hidden. Isn't that interesting? This category of destroying in order to build is also the word for hidden. You know why? Because a lot of times in our own life, in the world, we see destruction, or personally, we experience excuse me, we experience some form of destruction. But all it is, on the deepest level, is God creating a space to rebuild something more beautiful. And so, so with that in mind, with that in mind, let's, let's, let's do the love thing, right? Let's do beautiful things in beautiful ways, and in doing so, bring heaven down to earth, fuse them together, make it all one, and be able to see the next epic journey of reality that God put in the world from the very beginning. Okay. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.